0: I want to invite you to pull out a Bible if you have it, and we are going to continue our sermon series in Luke's Gospel, and you can open that Bible to Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. Um, very simply, we're going to read through the passage this morning, and we're going to camp out there and see what God has to say to us this morning. So I invite you to open a Bible to Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And if you're not sure how to navigate your way around a Bible, and if you're using a, one of the blue pew Bibles, you can find our passage on page 841. And let's give ear, because what we're about to hear is God's word. It says, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet. As a testimony against them. And so they set out and went from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, and others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. This is God's word for us this morning. Why don't we pray? Living God, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us, that the words that your Spirit inspired Luke to write would now be words that the Spirit illumines to our understanding and to our hearts, and that you would use these words to transform us and bring us into alignment with you and your good purpose for us and for your world. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. This week, as I was preparing uh, for this Sunday The concept of beautiful feet came to mind. Beautiful feet. That's an odd expression, isn't it? I mean, when we think of feet, beautiful is not the first word that comes to mind. I used to work at a summer camp uh, for about six years for a whole entire summer. And let me tell you, uh, when, when you get home from camp... There's a strange phenomenon that happens. Because you've spent the entire summer living in a forest, walking on dirt paths, and in my case, wearing sandals, uh, something happens to your feet. And you get home, and you get into the shower, and you start to clean your feet, and you realize that you don't have a tan, but it's caked on dirt. It is dirt that's almost become part of you. Over the course of the summer, and please don't blame me, right? The hygienic standards at camp tend to be a little lower than in the city. But you come back to the city and you realize just how incredibly dirty your feet are. Because you're walking around all over the place. And I imagine that as Jesus now sends his disciples with sandaled feet in the Middle East, a dusty, dry, hot climate, a similar thing is going to happen to their feet. They're going to get dirty feet, But there's this interesting phrase in the book of Isaiah where the prophet talks about beautiful feet. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace. Who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, that is the the hill on which Jerusalem was built, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And let me tell you, the messenger that Isaiah was thinking about did not have physically beautiful feet. He's been running through the mountains, he's been running through the wilderness, bringing good news to the cities of God's people. They're caked with dirt, calluses and they're cut up. But Isaiah says they're beautiful. And they're beautiful because they carry a beautiful message. Good news. And this is the same good news that Jesus has been going around in Galilee proclaiming and demonstrating, and it's the same good news, He now sends his disciples to start going around to proclaim. And that's what we're going to consider today, how, how Jesus wants to make of us a people who have beautiful feet, people who bring good news to a world that desperately needs to hear it. And as we'll see, as we go in this journey, we'll see that Jesus gives us a new mission. He gives us a new power. He gives us a new simplicity and he gives us a new intimacy. Let's begin with a new mission. When Jesus first began to call his disciples in Luke chapter five, you'll remember uh, the scene when Jesus is on the side of a lake and he's talking uh, with Peter and his other fisherman buddies and and Jesus does something unexpected. Jesus is a rabbi and he starts giving these seasoned fishermen advice on fishing and uh, for some reason, they listen to him And they end up casting their net on the other side of the boat and bringing in the largest haul of fish they had ever seen. They hit it big with this catch. And what ends up happening is they they bring the catch to the shore and Jesus calls them to follow him. It's amazing that they leave this catch They leave all this money, this success on the beach and they follow him and something interesting happens. Peter recognizes who he is. He recognizes his worthlessness before Jesus and he falls at his feet and says, get away from me, Lord. But Jesus' reply reply to him is don't be afraid. From now on, you're gonna fish for people. And as Peter's there in his worthlessness, Jesus meets him with this radical acceptance and starts to bring him into a new mission. You've been fishing for fish. Now you're going to fish for people. And I'm sure Peter was not entirely sure what that was going to mean, right? Like fish for people. That's really clear. But now it becomes clear. Look at verse 2. Jesus picks up this thread of the new mission that he's given to his disciples. He sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. That's what it's going to look like, to, to fish for people. Notice the two action words here, to proclaim and to heal. Notice how that's exactly what Jesus has been doing all along. And this new mission involves both words and deeds but I want us to focus on the content of the message. What's the message they are to proclaim? He says you're to proclaim the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom? We've talked about this before, but it bears repeating because this phrase, the kingdom of God, is the core message of Jesus. It's the thing he's talked about the most, and and it's kind of like the center around which all of his other teaching and deeds revolve. What is a kingdom? When we hear that word today, we, we kind of think uh, you know, of like medieval kings, and knights, and swordplay and that sort of thing. But if you think about it, think about what a kingdom is. Take the kingdom of King Arthur. I'm a fan of the King Arthur legends. In King Arthur's kingdom, uh, he has a domain, right? It's this space where his will is carried out. He gets to make the laws. He gets to decide um, who can come in and who can come out. He defends it, right? The the kingdom is the range of his effective will. It's the range of his effective will. And that's the way uh, Dallas Willard puts it. If you've heard of Christian philosopher Dallas Willard, he says the kingdom of God is is that range of God's effective will where what God wants done is done. And if you're taking notes, that would be a good one to write down. The kingdom is the range of God's effective will. You might be thinking that's still rather conceptual and philosophical. So let's break this down even more. I want you to think about your house. Your house. I want you to think about maybe your apartment or your room or your car. If you have the luxury of having a space that's yours, okay? Think about that space. That space is the place where where you get to decide what happens, right? Your will is carried out. You get to choose the paint color. You can arrange the furniture. Um, You get to decide who comes in and who stays out. You get to order it. You get to decide what it smells like. For better or for worse, you get to decide how clean you're going to keep it. You get to call the shots. It's like your kingdom, right? Take that and then blow it up to the entire world. And what the kingdom is and what the kingdom is like is that it's Jesus Christ coming into the world and announcing to everyone this is my house. God in Christ comes into the world and starts to take the world back. Don't get me wrong, it's been his house all along. But now is the time where he's putting things in order. Now is the time where he's gonna fix everything that's wrong, where everything that is sad is gonna come untrue as the range of God's will, the the, the place where God's will is carried out as that expands through the person and work of Jesus, and his disciples. That's what we're seeing in Luke. Jesus is taking the world back. And what does it look like when God comes and starts taking his world back? People are liberated. People are healed. People are restored in every respect, physically, socially, psychologically, emotionally. When Jesus comes, evil is confronted It's judged and it is expelled. And when Jesus comes, our most fundamental need is met. Our sins are forgiven. And people can live in fellowship, in relationship with the living God. And now Jesus is sending his disciples to participate in that work. They are to go out announcing God's reign and demonstrating what God's reign is like. Look at verse six. It says that they went around preaching the gospel. The gospel simply means good news. But in Jesus' day, this was a specific kind of good news. It was the kind of good news that a king sent out uh, when there had been a major military victory among the nation. Good news, we were in a fight and we won it, so you send out messengers and they bring good news to the towns. Or when a new king is born, you send out a gospel. Someone goes out to all the towns and says, there's a new king, good news. And Jesus is doing that. He's sending out his own gospel, that God is king and that he's taking the world back and he's setting things right. That's the message that his disciples carry. And as we see uh, in Luke's gospel, um, that Jesus has been calling disciples to himself. He's been teaching them, equipping them, and sending them. There's a trend. There's a trend that starts to happen here, right? It began with Jesus, and now it's 12. I want you to take your Bible and and look in the next chapter, chapter 10 of Luke. And if someone is brave enough to just read out, if you have a heading, it's a non-inspired heading that was added later, but if you just read out the heading, of uh, the beginning of chapter 10. What does it say? Nice and loud, someone. He sends out the 72. Right. Now there's 72 being sent out. And uh, you'll notice, like, if you read chapter 10, you'll go, wow, this is really similar to chapter nine, right? Jesus basically tells them to do the same thing, but now it's 72, And what Luke is starting to signal to us is that Jesus' mission is meant to expand. Jesus, the 12, 72, and it's just gonna get blown wide open in the book of Acts, like we're gonna see. That's the trend of Jesus' mission and work. It's meant to expand. It's meant to go out. And I've called this a new mission because when Jesus gets hold of our lives, he takes the mission that we were living for and fundamentally changes it. He brings us into his mission, right? It's a new mission, but I wanna be clear, it's also an old mission. Because what Jesus is doing is actually renewing the mission of God that began on page one of the Bible. On page one, God made the world to be this place of beauty and order where he would reign as king and he made humans, you and I, to live there with him and to participate in his work of ordering the world and continuing to make it a place where life can flourish. And if you remember, that all got off track, right? We rebelled against God and sin and sickness and death came in and then God started to set apart a family, a person with a family to be his people, to take back up, that task of representing him to the world and carrying out his will. In Genesis twelve two, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. God is talking to Abraham and this is what God says. He said, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And here he introduces mission. Why is God gonna do this? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right? That's been God's purpose from the beginning and what happened with Abraham is he had 12 grandsons, okay, 12. Where have we heard that number before? Today, these 12 disciples and what we're seeing here is that these, through these 12, they're actually renewing. Jesus is renewing the mission of Israel to be the people through which the nations are gonna be blessed, through which the nations are gonna come into contact with the living God. The kingdom of God is all throughout scripture. Someone asked me this week, where do we see the kingdom of God in the Old Testament? And one of my thoughts was, where, do, where don't we see it? It's just everywhere. Everywhere. God is king, and he hasn't abandoned his world. He has not abandoned us. As the great hymn says, though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. And our mission, the mission that Jesus gives us, is to be a people with beautiful feet who bring the good news of God's rule and become conduits of his kingdom and healing. So the question comes to us, have I embraced that new mission? Have I embraced that new mission for my life? A seismic shift for me personally happened when I began serving at camp, right? Dirty feet, camp. You're put in a context of intense mission and service. And the shift that happened for me was that I grew up uh, thinking that the point of life was to look out for myself, right? To, to, to build a nice, comfortable, secure, stable life. Uh, and my life mission is to look out for, right, number one, me and my own. And my view of the world was one in which there are seven billion people on the planet doing that very same thing, right? They're all looking out for themselves. They're living life to serve their own interests, and I'm just like one of those seven billion trying to climb the heat to the top. And, and the strong get there and, and the weak and the vulnerable don't. And that's how it's supposed to be, right? That's, that's kind of how I grew up thinking. Then Jesus came along and he really used the camp experience in my life to start showing me the upside down way of his kingdom. He showed me God's love. He showed me the love that enters into the mess not to step on people and be powerful but to get down with them and lift them up. And it started to dawn on me that what Jesus was confronting me with wasn't just like a religious alternative to the way the world works but that he was confronting me with the way that the world is supposed to be. That this is how God God made the world to be and this is what he made me for and and that the sin and the sickness and the evil and 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 our self-centeredness my own self-centeredness was not meant to be. that it's this unnatural intrusion into God's good world and so Jesus started to shift me in in a sense displacing me from the throne of my life to put him on the throne of my life and let me tell you that was a hard shift right I thought life was all about me and Jesus starts deconstructing that. And he starts inviting me into his mission, totally redefining my life's purpose. That's what Jesus does. Is he doing that in you? Has he done it? Is he doing it? And how are you responding to him as he invites you into this new mission? As we follow Jesus, he gives us a new mission. And he also gives us a new power. Look at verse one. It says that Jesus gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Picture yourself as a disciple, right? Try and step into their shoes. You've been watching Jesus doing all these things. He's been completely blowing your mind. And then he turns to you and your ragtag crew of friends and he turns it over to you. He turns the keys over. He's like, all right guys, here you go. Here's the power, here's the authority, go do it. Mind-blowing. And it's incredible to know that that when Jesus calls us into his mission, he, he doesn't just leave us without resources, he gives us his very own power, that's the might. Uh, to do what he's been doing and to say what he's been saying, to confront evil in the world and to bring healing. He gives them authority. That's the right to do it, right? Because he's the king. An important point to notice here is that power and authority come from Jesus. And you might say, Andrew, that is the most obvious thing. And I would just say to you, yes, it is, but we so often forget it. The word gave is really important, and Jesus is the giver. This tells us that for us, even today, the source of power and authority to participate in his mission is Jesus. And what that tells us is that the kind of authority that we get to step out in is a delegated authority. Understand what that means, a delegated authority authority. That means that it never becomes my own possession to do with what I will, right? That means that it, the authority and the power he gives um, actually needs to represent Jesus faithfully in how I step out in that, right? It means love, humility, service, and gentleness, and, and here's, you know, here's why I'm saying this, because as soon as I lose touch with Jesus, or as soon as I start to get You know, enamored with the power and authority that I have. When I step out and use that power, motivated by my own ego or motivated by a desire to be great, it's like I've gone rogue, right? I'm not using the power in the spirit of the Lord, I'm not using the power in the spirit of the crucified and risen Messiah and I need a reality check, right? It's whose authority is it? It's Jesus's. Who does my life belong to? It belongs to Christ. Whose will needs to reign supreme in my life? Whose kingdom am I trying to build? It's God's, it's Jesus's kingdom. And so what am I gonna boast in? The apostle Paul, right? I don't think anyone in this room would deny that he was a man full of resurrection, power and used mightily by God. You know what he says in Galatians 6.14? He says, may I never boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I never boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 1, he says that the cross is the wisdom and the power of God. I'm saying this because as we step out with the notion that Christ has given us power and authority, we also step out as his representatives and the way we apply and use his power and authority must be cross-shaped or else we've gone rogue. And power needs to be treated with care. I mean, you, you look in the news and just see how power has this corrosive effect on people. Right? And if we aren't letting the cross of Christ guide us in the application of power, we're in danger. You'll see, you'll see this in the next chapter, right? Jesus sends out the 72. You know what they do when they come back? They're so excited, and rightly so. God's been doing amazing things through them, and they come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, even the demons are submitting to us. When we use your name, they're, they're so ecstatic. And Jesus says to them, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, he's saying, you know, that's awesome that you carried out the task I asked you to, but don't put your focus there. Don't rejoice in yourselves as power often makes us do, right? Instead, rejoice that God has taken hold of your life and he saved you. This new power and authority are delegated to us, but our focus needs to remain on Jesus and his cross and resurrection for the use of that power. But here's the thing. I'm talking about people who get really like into power. I imagine that most of us kind of fall on the other side of the spectrum, right? That, that most of us probably make too little of the power and authority of Christ in our life. Do we live with the awareness of who Christ is? Do we live with an awareness of the power that he has that we've been meeting here in Luke? Do we live in light of this new power that he's given us to follow him? And do we live in the awareness that Christ himself is in us by his spirit to lead us and to empower us for bold witness to his kingdom? I just want to say, if that's you in the room this morning, don't be discouraged. Just come to Jesus. If you're making too little of the power and authority of Christ in your life. Some of you might be thinking, Okay, preacher, how do I get the power? Right? You're talking about power like show me the power. How do I get it? Just wanna say that what we see here is Jesus gives it. And he gives it to those who have gotten him. Does that make sense? He gives it to those who have taken him and put their life on him, right? These disciples have left everything and they've followed him. He gives it as you embrace him as your fundamental life trust. The focus and effort on our part aren't to be given to power itself, okay? If you're someone and you're like, oh, I need power, I need power, I want this spiritual power, Um, one of two things will happen to you if you focus on power. You'll either become conceited, um, because maybe you've learned some techniques or some triumphal ways of speaking, and you find that you are gaining some influence and you think you have power, but you're actually on your way to becoming like those 72 disciples who are rejoicing in themselves. On the other hand, you can become discouraged if you're just focusing on power for power's sake because you're trying to attain power, but you're not coming to the source. You're not coming to the giver of the power. And you come to the point where you realize, man, this is not working, and you give up. But if you focus on Jesus himself, if you place your trust in him and take his life for your life, and you welcome the influence of his will, to increase in you, then you'll soon find that you have the power and authority without even trying to get it. Because they're flowing from the life of Christ in you and his love is going to impel you into that new mission with a sense of joy and adventure. And you're not going to be thinking about yourself and how great you are. You're going to be absolutely convinced of who Jesus is and of what he can do and how good he is. Power isn't about technique, it's about a person. It's about the person of Christ who has taken up residence in you on the throne of your life. Amen? (laughs) So if you feel the lack of power in your life, just come to Jesus. Place your trust in him, submit to him, and get to know him more. There's one other thing I want to say about power that comes up in our text. And it's that power and authority are, are given here and it, there's almost like this highlight reel moment, right? The disciples are going out, they're healing everyone, they're proclaiming the kingdom of God, it's great. But then there's also the reality, the reality of suffering and opposition. Did you notice that? Look at verses seven to nine. And as we were reading, you might have wondered, why on earth did Luke kind of insert this little aside about Herod? It totally interrupts the story, right? The disciples go out, Herod, and then the disciples come back. What is going on here? Why is this little section placed there? Here's why. As Jesus' movement expands, like I said, on that expanding trend, And his disciples step out in his power and authority. There is a growing resistance, right? Herod Antipas was the political ruler of Galilee, right? He was a power. And Luke is signaling that as Jesus' movement expands, it starts to unsettle the powers of the world. Right? There's this clash because uh, God comes to earth in Christ and says, this is my house and he starts setting things right. The powers of the world and the powers of evil don't just roll over and say, okay, here you go. There's resistance. They resist the reign of God and then there's a small detail that you might've missed but it's, a, it's like this huge news, news flash. Notice, John the Baptist is dead the forerunner of Jesus in his movement who just a couple of chapters ago was active and was like asking Jesus, are you the one who's to come? Now all of a sudden we find out Herod's killed him. Did you notice that? That's a huge blow to Jesus in his movement and it's signaling to us that following Jesus might very well bring us into danger, right? It's not always gonna be this highlight real life. Power and authority are also given to help us persevere through the suffering and persecution which are going to come our way because our allegiance is given to Jesus and not to the world. But that's good news for us this morning who are feeling burdened, who are feeling the weight of persecution, who are feeling the weight of suffering. Jesus gives a new mission. He gives a new power and he gives a new simplicity. If you turn your attention to verse three, Jesus tells the 12 that he sends out to travel light, right? No staff, no duffel bag, no snacks, no money, no change of clothes. And one of the questions that you're probably having is, is is this the pattern for all Christians, right? Is this what we should all be doing now? And if, if, if I go across the world and I bring my duffel bag, am I lacking faith, right? And the the simple answer is no, right? This isn't their permanent way of life. This is a a short, itinerant kind of preaching tour. It's it's an internship for them. It's not meant to be the, the permanent pattern for everyone everywhere. And Jesus is gonna tell them later in chapter 22 to bring a bag after he's died and raised. So it's a contextual instruction for this time, but it does tell us something. It tells us that Jesus wants his disciples to learn dependence, right? That's the point. Learn dependence. As you go out in this new mission and with this new power, you need to learn to depend on God, right? If you're going out with nothing, you have no recourse to your own resources, right? They had to step out and trust that God was going before them. And, And And sometimes in our own Christian life, God can call us into a season of simplicity where he asks us to leave something that maybe we had started leaning a bit too heavily on. That's what disciplines of fasting are good for uh, and the various shapes that that can take in our life or, or a spiritual retreat, special times of focused ministry where our routines are disrupted and we go with a special focus to follow Jesus. I mean, I'm always uh, floored every summer when I see the students who go to serve at our summer camp for just two weeks, and the transformation that happens in their life, because in that two weeks, like, it's intense. It's this intense push of serving kids, of planning, of taking care of needs, and basically, like, you see all these teenagers caring for all these kids, and they're becoming adults in like the blink of an eye. It's amazing. But God can use those times of special focused ministry in our lives or fasting to teach us to rely on him. And that's a good thing. It can deepen our trust. And secondly, he wants them to learn to be dependent on people. And that's definitely like a sub point, like dependence on God. Yes, that's the big one. But notice how he tells them to rely on the hospitality of others. Right? How many of us, if we were the disciples, we'd say, no, thanks, Jesus, I'll just book a hotel. Um, you know, I can get along on my own resources. Thank you very much. Because it's uncomfortable, right, to have to depend on another. That's what he asked them to do. Because he knows that that's how real communities and real relationships are formed. Because they're going to plant the seeds of a church being birthed in all these different places. And the church is a community of people who are walking out in dependence on God and dependence on one another. Vulnerability, right? Church isn't about perception management, managing how people perceive you by the clothes you wear, by the words you say. It's about us being who we are gathered around Jesus in real relationship and vulnerability and interdependence. Are there ways that Jesus wants to simplify your life in this season, to to grow your dependence on him. And lastly, just as we close and we get ready to move to the table, Jesus invites his disciples into a new intimacy. Notice in verse 10, how after they come back, he took them with him, right? It's, It's almost this image of like, he's gathering them back, right? He's gathering them back, And they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. We'll find out next week how the plans for the retreat turn out. They don't turn out great. But Jesus' intention is to bring them into this new intimacy. Where not only have they been watching Jesus do what he does, but they've been equipped and empowered to step out and do what he does. And then all of a sudden, there's this new fellowship. There's this new fellowship because you start uh, to walk alongside Jesus as a co-participant and you start to understand what Jesus had gone through and you find fellowship with him there. And this morning, I encourage you to see Jesus standing before us at this table. Jesus is gathering us to himself at this meal. To, to celebrate his sacrifice on the cross, which has opened up the way for us to become new people with a new purpose, but just to come to him and to receive from him. Amen.